It's five minutes with me. Hello, listener. I am your speaker, and my name is Marco. And that should be obvious because you're listening to Five Minutes with Marco. Okay. My favorite stage musical is Cats. That's a lie, actually. I'm a glimpse into my strange sense of humor. Sorry if I've offended you. Sorry, not sorry. Sort of. My favorite stage musical is actually Les Miserables. And to be honest, I prefer the film versions because I can focus on the storyline, not being distracted by the theatrics and staging. I was more upbeat about the 2012 version with Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway than many people I know. I was two thumbs up about the 2000 version with Gerard Depardieu and John Malkovich. But my favorite version of the story by far is the 1998 non-musical version starring Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush, Uma Thurman, and a very young Claire Danes. Please, you gotta watch this one. I think the reason... The 1998 version of Les Mis is my favorite is because it contains one of my all-time favorite movie scenes in any film ever. It's a scene in all versions of Les Mis, but none capture it quite like the 1998 film version. You can click forward 15 seconds if you're a Les Mis groupie, but to ev- to make sure everyone is on the same page, Les Miserables is a story written as a book by Victor Hugo in 1862 and widely considered one of the best novels of the 19th century. It's the story of Jean Valjean, a, a peasant who steals a loaf of bread for his starving sister's child and then spends 19 years in prison for the crime. After his release, he breaks parole and is hunted down by a law-obsessed in a uh, police inspector named Javert. There's much more to the story, of course. It's an exploration of law and grace, loyalty, transformation, and redemption. My favorite scene occurs fairly early in the film when Jean Valjean is first on the run for breaking parole. Turned away from multiple inns because his yellow passport marks him as a convict, Valjean is taken in by the town's priest, Bishop Muriel. During the night, Valjean steals the rectory's silverware, but he's caught, and policemen return him to and the silverware to the rectory to refute Valjean's claim that the silverware was given to him en route to what clearly will be a return to prison. Here's the breathtaking scene. When the police ask the bishop is if the silverware is his, he responds that it was the rectory's, but that Valjean is correct in stating it was a gift. As the police release Valjean and turn to leave, the bishop continues, saying that Valjean had forgotten to take the silver candlesticks. Valjean's face reveals confusion, and the bishop reiterates that the valuable candlesticks were part of the gift. Pulling Valjean aside, Bishop Muriel quietly says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Whew, it choked up just reading that to you guys now. This scene is powerful to me and thousands of others on multiple levels. Levels. First, I am Valjean, and so are you, so are the young people that you work with. I do not deserve mercy, but I've been shown it countless times by my God and by the people in my life. Second, the measure of mercy is over the top, not only forgiveness, but a double portion gift. This is a clear picture of Jesus, particularly through the lens of the bishop's final comment. And then, as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to live like this, to be a dispenser of this style of mercy, which I 
find simultaneously life-giving and completely counter to my instincts. And the scene is a powerful picture of Hope's arrival. Valjean heads into the rectory courtyard held by the policeman completely without hope, full of fear and completely demoralized, days out of exile and about to be returned. He leaves with a kernel of possibility starting to crack open in his heart. This is Jesus who shows up in the midst of our confusion and pain and fear and surprises us with hope. Other than the fact that Valjean would not be returning to prison, the immediate circumstances of his life are still difficult. But his imagination is sparked and the dream of a new potential hope and longing begin to dance. Why am I telling you this on a mostly youth ministry podcast? Well, two reasons. First, every week I speak with youth workers who are struggling to have hope. Even though we're at least mostly past the struggle of ministry during the pandemic, our new reality is so often a struggle. Where did the regular attenders go? And why can't I seem to get them to return? And young people are wrestling with so many issues that feel beyond my training or experience to address. Youth workers need hope. You need hope and not simply optimism. You and I need the sort of hope that gets initiated in pain and struggle and comes with the presence of Jesus. Secondly, young people need hope. I don't think it's an overstatement that young people need hope tangibly more than maybe at any other time in recent history. Anxiety, stress, deep questions about injustice, skepticism about their future. Of course, we need a multi-pronged approach to help teenagers with these issues. I'm not suggesting a simplistic let go and let God approach. But ultimately, young people need the hope that shows up like mercy in the midst of their struggle. Let's lead them to the place where they get the silver candlesticks. The Youth Cartel Podcast Network.